I don't know how you celebrated your holiday, uh, but at our household, uh, my wife had to work. And so uh, we uh, adored the amazingness of God becoming flesh, entering into baby Jesus by taking my kids out in the front and shoveling snow. It's the holy vocation of worship to our exalted Savior. And uh, I have kids that are aged differently um, that are from like 12 down to 3. And so my oldest sons are getting to the place where they're actually helpful when it comes to removing snow. And my bottom three are like not so helpful. Um, So I go out with the oldest two and we begin to kind of get the snow out the way. Um, But my youngest... They just want to join us, and so they come out um, with us to get in the snow. And me and their mother, there are certain conversations that we have to have all the time about, hey, it's winter, put a jacket on, like wear boots, like not flippers, right? Like we're kind of having, and I'm just, there's kind of two, me and my wife have very different parenting styles. I just get tired of saying this stuff over and again. I'm like, no, just, just you do you. And so my youngest son is three, all right, wears glasses, didn't bring the glasses, gym shorts, all right, and because his uh, grandparents are ranchers, he got new cowboy boots, he got gym shorts, cowboy boots, right, t-shirt, right, no gloves, no jacket, and I'm just like, yeah, just roll that out there. Go give that a go. And he comes out. He's fine. He's playing. Gets out in the snow. And it's deep in our yard. So he starts trekking through the yard, which for him is like waist-deep snow. All right? No gloves, no jacket, no hat, no glasses. And I know from his vision, he he can't even see anything. All right? And gets out there. And I'm like, God is about to teach my son about the cold. All right? Lessons that Matt Lee still hasn't learned because he wears those chacos in winter. But some of you are hard to teach. He comes out there, gets in the middle of the snow, like up to his waist, and just goes, oh, like, like he put his hands in there because my kids eat snow. And I've, I've had the yellow snow conversation, so if it's white, go for it. Like they're just eating snow, and his hands are freezing. And he's not yelling for me because he's old enough now that he doesn't, Mom's not there. There's no mommy to come help you. He's just going, ah, like just, just a moan of pain, of frostbite about to take him. And I just sat there and look at him for a minute, and he's, he's not even asking me to help. He doesn't even know how to get out of it. He's just in a bad spot. And so I, as a dad, trek over to him, reach down and grab him out of the snow, take him down, grab his hands, begin to blow on his hands, Right? Send him into the house forever having learned the lesson of, brother, wear a jacket and gloves. Or at least pants. You know? And that story is is so um, central to where I, I want to get to today in the text. Is that the word we sang, hark, is not a word we use all the time. It's a it's a song for it's a word for attention grabbing. And And it's a desperate word. And what my son taught me, and I think what we'll see in this text is, we have to become desperate. That there's times where we need help that we won't 
ask for? That you look around us and we need help, but we won't ask for it. And so what we see in the text today is Jesus providing the help that we didn't ask for, but that we desperately need. And some of us, I think if we will, maybe if we were humble enough, we would actually begin to cry out and heart and we would begin to, to actually acknowledge the help that we need and cry out to Jesus for it. And that's my, that's my hope for today. So before we get too far in, let's pray. We're going to read and then just dive in. So maybe um, if wherever you're at, if you just bow and posture your heart in humility I know for some of us this is incredibly hard because we are so self-sufficient, we got it all together, and we don't need anything. The problem with that is it's just not true. And so if you could just humble your heart here for a second. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you helped a whole world of people who by their sin said they don't need you. And so God, thank you for coming and not doing for us what we want, but doing for us what we need. And so God, Holy Spirit, would you come and make myself and my brothers and sisters and our friends here, would you make us aware of how desperate we are for you? how much we need you, how much our lives are incomplete without you, of how much we ruin ourselves left to our own devices. God, would you come here and shatter pride and alert us to the gospel. Holy Spirit, come and make Jesus explicit and make the message clear. Pastor these people, God, they're sheep of your pastor. Father, we're so full in our appetites with other things that we've stuffed in this holiday season. God, would you clear our palate again and help us to savor the greatness and the goodness of Jesus. We ask that in the strong name of Jesus, everyone said. Amen. If you've got a Bible, uh, we're walking straight through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, section by section. If you've got a copy of the Scriptures, open it to Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Our goal is to get to 32. All right, um, there's for those that come here regularly, not a great amount of confidence that we're going to get there. Uh, but thirty to thirty-two, that's the goal. Uh, starting in verse thirty, they went on from there. If you were here with us last week or you've caught up online, they have just healed the boy that was possessed uh, of demonic or dark forces, having come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and we said the great confession of Peter is the middle of the whole gospel of Mark that tells us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and now he is running down the hill from the Mount of Transfiguration straight to the cross, but we're going we're gonna to hit some um, demonic stuff like we did last week. We're going to hit some different teachings and different things along the way, but from um, the great confession, we are running straight to Jerusalem and to the cross, and so they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel where he dominated a lot of his ministry in connection to prophecies about how the 
Messiah would come to the north first because that's where they blew it first. And they did not want anyone to know. So many theologians would say here, Jesus is done with the big crowd ministry, the the lots of people thing, the feeding of 5,000. That stuff's in the rearview mirror. He's now zooming in on the disciples and focusing particularly in the direction of the cross. For he was teaching his disciples. Note, Jesus gives himself in teaching to his disciples in ways that the whole world does not have access to. He goes deeper with those that are his. And saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to put hands on him. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The resurrection is not an afterthought. It is a premeditated activity of God to conquer death by the cross. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, for they were afraid to ask him. So back, back up into verse 30. And they went on from there. Just a little bit of jog about where we were last time. One of the indictments that we had about the disciples and why they were unable to do some of the same things that Jesus was able to do is that I made the argument they were living off of the glory of past experiences. That they were living off of yesterday's power, yesterday's quiet time, yesterday's time in God's presence in prayer. And they were not going to God for fresh power and fresh experience of the Holy Spirit to enable them to do what God had them to do today. And we get tons of churches and tons of Christians that do this exact same thing. Your walk with God was solid 10 years ago. But where are you getting the power for today? They lived off of past power, but they hadn't had a fresh experience of what God wanted to fill them with and do through them today. And so they weren't ready for what had just happened in the previous passage with the, the, the son that was possessed of the demon. And so they were staying on top of the mountain. They weren't ready for war down in the valley of the shadow of death. And I'll put it to you another way. They weren't desperate. They weren't desperate. And they get exposed because they show up to a challenge that's too big for them. And they hadn't been leaning on God. And we see that because Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. And I would say this about much of the Christianity in our country today. Is that we're not ready to win our culture for Christ. And you can tell because we're not desperate in prayer. We're not desperate to win our culture for Christ. And you can tell by how we pray. You can even tell by what we pray about. As long as we don't want it as bad as we want a raise, or as bad as we want the Broncos to win the Super Bowl, another miracle, right? As long as we don't want it that bad, it, like we're not going to pray. We're not going to put our lives on the altar and be desperate. And so that's the context of where we come here. In um, after the pilgrims landed in America, there was this era that came right after the pilgrims in the 1600s. 
And they had set up, they had set up the culture, set up planted churches. They had started um, most of our, all of our Ivy League, uh, all of our Ivy League universities were began by Christians. Uh, even if you look in Princeton's uh, charter, Princeton was started for the evangelization of the whole world. And it has come so far from that. Well, what, what, some things have happened where there became a tension after that first group of pilgrims. Here's what's happened. People began um, to become worldly. The generation of the first pilgrims had died off, and now it was a, a new generation. Um, the 1600s had ended with the Salem witch trial, which I study history. It's terrible that the Puritans are known for the Salem witch trial. There's volumes of writing of all the things that they did, but because you went to American government school education, the only thing you know about the Puritans is the Salem witch trials. But it's not like a beautiful mark on the, on the church at that time. And so that's how it's kind of ending. And there's a question about what will happen with the next generation after the pilgrims. At that time, deism became the cool religion. Like um, You can see that even in some of the um, founding fathers. That got into Harvard. Uh, we began to send our ministers back to Europe for colleges and seminaries. And they were completely abandoning the gospel. And so a lot of the ministers that came back were not preaching the gospel because the seminaries had gotten off track. And so this cold rationalism of Europe began to become an excuse for us to be worldly. And now the foundation that their fathers and forefathers had laid in America began to begin, get bombarded by worldly philosophy. So here's the question. What are you they responded in a way that the disciples didn't to the boy possessed of the demon here's what they responded with they responded with prayer and preaching they did not do even what I think so much of what we do instead they prayed and they preached they refused to live off the glory of a church era that was gone by. They sought God for something fresh. They prayed and they preached. They didn't live off former power, they sought fresh power. And in that way, largely, high school aged kids were a part of one of the greatest revivals that the country had ever seen at that time. So put it in this context. They led 10% of America to Christ. If we're at 400 million people or so right now, that's 40 million people that came to Christ because of high school kids that gathered together and began to pray. That's 70-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 30-year-olds coming to Christ because a 16-year-old prayed and preached. It was considered a great revival that brought our culture back to Christ. Here's how the last segment ended, and we need to know this because they're moving on from there. They learned that some things are only driven out by prayer. Now, Jesus, while he's teaching them to pray, is going to teach them what the message is that they're going to preach. He's going to lay the gospel out to them. Now, this same passage that we've looked at, 30 through 32, is laid out in Luke chapter 9, 
43 through 45. And it actually connects the passage that came before and this teaching much more intimately than what we see here. It says that while they were marveling and while they were astonished at what God can do, Jesus comes in and drops the gospel on them. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going, to, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And it's actually in that context, while you're marveling at the power of all that God can do, there is nothing that displays the power of God more than the gospel. Don't get it twisted about miracles. Miracles are signposts. They point to Jesus. Or you miss the point of miracles. And that's how the, the gospels kind of lay this out. And this isn't the first time, if you've been tracking with us, that you've heard this. Flip back over to chapter 8 um, and look at um, 31 through 33. The rebuke of Peter has the same thing. Look, and he began, chapter 8, verse 31, and he began to teach them. So Jesus begins at the great confession doing the same thing. To teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said this to them plainly. And we've joked about this. You know he said it plainly because Peter got it. Said this to them plainly. Right? And that's when Peter says he took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebukes Jesus because Jesus has the cross in mind. And we can flip forward, look at chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. Chapter 10, 32 through 34. And they went on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus has Jerusalem on his mind. And Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Amazed, afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. You want details? They will spit on him. They will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. One thing I note from this passage is that your greatest fears... And your greatest astonishment at God is bound up with you following behind Jesus. And Jesus does not dance around that there are some things that you're going to be afraid of if you follow me seriously. He goes straight at it. And so we come back to this passage. Passing through Galilee, incognito, because it's not about... It's not about feeding 5,000 in large crowd ministry. It is the cross and the cross alone that is in the center of his views. He's going to die in Jerusalem. And the same mobs that loved him and wanted to make him king are going to cry, crucify him. The cancel culture is going to come for Jesus and they're going to nail him to a cross. So, let me make a basic observation about Master Jesus. Jesus preaches the gospel. And if you're his disciple, we do well to imitate his example. Amen? Jesus preached the gospel. Preached the life, death, and resurrection as the Son of God. This 
Good news is the mark of a historical work where he's going to enter into the fallen world and overcome its evil. And here's the danger, and I'd say this, as elders who interview people that join our church, one of the only... One of the questions that we ask people when we kind of do a meet and greet with them is, tell us the gospel. Like, tell us the gospel. And you'd be surprised how often we get people that tell us about methodology, but don't tell us about the historical event of what Jesus did on the cross in his resurrection. See, I think a lot of times Christians don't preach the gospel because they don't know the gospel. And that's a danger there because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Not church language. Biblical gospel is what saves us. And Jesus, our master, preached it. And so let me be explicit for how we've tried to say that here at this church. Every sermon needs the gospel, every song needs the gospel. Every church needs the gospel. Every house church needs the gospel. Every ministry needs the gospel. Every mission that we go on needs the gospel. Every leader in their heart needs the gospel. It's the rocket fuel that empowers us to glorify God in all that we do. We're not getting over it or around it or skipping it. And Jesus, I would argue, is Constantly putting it before his boys. So, verse 32 gets to this incredible reality that I think should hit you and hit me. They were afraid to ask him about it. And I get that because I didn't grow up in the church culture. So once I started coming to church, there were all these things I had questions about. But I didn't want to look like the dummy that didn't know why we're singing about blood of lambs. All right? And you can show up to church and everybody else got a Bible and it looks like they've read the whole thing. And if that's you, just let me tell you, most of them haven't, all right? You're safe here, all right? But you show up to church and you think everybody else got this thing all figured out because they know what the word hark means. And you can feel intimidated, right, to ask questions. It says that they were afraid to ask him. Now, in the past, we talked about questions they asked coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. We talked about that. It's because they believe that he's a Messiah that they had questions that they asked. They just weren't asking him the main questions. So Jesus has to circle them back to that after answering the peripheral stuff. He actually zooms them back into the gospel. Look back in chapter um, 9, 9 through 10. But that's not exactly what's going on here. I think that, I mean, there's a question here. Is, is Jesus unapproachable? I would argue no. Because children aren't afraid to come up and climb into his lap. I think our pride makes us not want to ask certain things. We don't want to probe too deep into this Christianity thing. It might cost us our lives. Or even less than that, it costs us our weekends or our hobbies or money. Or whatever we hold more dear. There's questions that this says to us. There's questions about God that we don't even really want to ask. We don't really want to ask because there's things about God we would rather not know. 
things that he's doing that we don't like. And so we disengage. We'd rather not know. I'll give you an example. Uh, I talk about my kids shoveling snow. It's amazing. Have you ever given your kids directions to go do a chore, but you didn't give them detailed directions? You just said, go shovel snow without any parameters of what you expect for that to look like, right? Two shovels later, they're back in the house. It's like, yo, man, you didn't say how much snow to shovel, right? Go clean your room. That's a relative term, right? It's like, I picked up four things. Now, there's 4,000 on the ground, but I got four. And what them... Have you ever had this with your siblings if you've had to do this before or at your job? You don't ask for follow-up information so that you can do the bare minimum. What, what that means is, is like, if someone begins to say, like, at your work or your boss or if you were a kid with your parents, begins to ask, hey, so how much of this, your other say, don't ask that, right? Like, no, 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 no. Because the moment that we get that knowledge we can no longer plead ignorance. We're now accountable for the information that we have. So we plead ignorance. But if we know, if we ask the, if we ask the right question, then what God's doing becomes crystal clear. And we got no excuse. I think that Jesus on the other side is begging them to ask about this. He's initiating this conversation I think he's setting them up. He's zooming them in. Let me put it to you like this. He's dying for them to know. He's dying for them to know what he's about. He's dying for them to know who he is. And he's dying so that you can know. We're just afraid of what the an- that answer might mean. In particular, I think they're afraid it might mean their own suffering as well. And so we would just rather not go there. We settle for not knowing. Now this gets into a, a reality that I think a lot of us could affirm. Many of us in here have come to trust in Jesus and we know Him. Like we've, we've put our faith in what He's done on the cross and the resurrection. You would come in here and you say... I've come to experience God in Christ Jesus and I know Him in truth. But you don't know Him exhaustively. Your brain is not that big. So the question is between, I can know, in a similar thing, relational dynamics, like I know my wife, but far be it from me to say that I know her exhaustively. Right? And if that's true, but we're, but we're in relationship, we're in covenant, I know her truly. I just don't know everything. Right? Now the question is, is do I want to know her more? And that'll tell you what the nature of my relationship and how healthy it is with my wife. I've heard it said that um, good husbands are like archaeologists. The older she gets, the more interested they become. Do you want to know Him more? Because this knowledge cannot be intellectual information alone. It must be knowledge on fire. It's got to be knowledge on fire. So here's the thing. 
at the end of this passage, it says that they don't get it. Like they don't get it. And I know it's snobbery for us having the whole canon of Scripture and the whole view and church history to be able to look back and say, I know the whole story. I can't believe how they didn't get it. I can't fathom how they would miss the point of this when his teaching is so explicit and his example is so clear. How could they possibly miss this? Uh, I think it's kind of like this. Any, did anybody give gifts this year? Listen, if you're not into giving gifts, that's fine. Anybody give gifts this year? Raise your hand. Come on, you spent the money. Might as well put your hand up. All right? That credit card's coming in January. All right? All right, so you got gifts. Have you ever gotten a gift for a kid in a box? Wrap that box up. Give the gift to the kid. Kid pulls gift out of box. Spends two hours with the box. I think you get this passage. Right? Anybody come to the holiday and we got gingerbread and lights and we got songs, some songs about buying stuff, some songs about drinking at Christmas, some songs about the eternal Son of God, and, so, and we got gifts, and we got trees, and we've got tinsel, right? And we've got amazing sweaters that used to be terrible when our grandmother gave them to them, but now they're cool, all right? And we got all of this stuff. How, but if we ask our kids what their favorite part of Christmas is, how dangerous would it be for them to say out loud that it's stuff? And listen, what happens is, is that it's not because there's no Jesus in our Christmas. So it's not that we're taking Christ all the way out of Christmas. I mean, some of the pagans do that in culture, but that's not us. What we do is we add so much activity that we dilute Jesus with distractions. And it's not a single death blow that distracts you from what is central. It's death by a million swipes on social media. Until he's just kind of like flooded out. It's playing with the wrapping and the box and the decoration. But you missed the gift. And that's how we lose focus. That's how we come to not know. That's how we choose to not get it. Is we add activities until we take away all focus on knowing Christ. So I'll put it like this. I heard this and I think it's valuable. Each of us is an innkeeper who decides if there's room enough for Jesus. Each of us is an innkeeper who decides if in our lives there's room enough for Jesus or if we're already filled up. So here's my invitation. I want to end here. The invitation is to hark. The invitation is to pay attention. Similar to the Hebrew word shema, pay attention, listen, hear, obey. We sing the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? And many of us don't ever think about the word hark. We don't use that all the time. Um, the song was uh, written by Charles Wesley, one of the Wesley brothers. Um, he, he actually wrote it as a poem. Um, 
a year after his conversion, 1739. It was a poem. And in the poem, he wrote it a year later for, to be read on Christmas Day. So it would use poetry to invite. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer, um, founder of early Methodism. Um, and he wrote like 6,000 hymns. But he also wrote poems. And so this was a poem that he wrote. And it actually had kind of archaic language. Like uh, there's the word Wilkin in it. And I'd never heard that before. It sounds really Lord of the Rings-ish. Uh, Wilkin was another word for heaven. So this poem was adapted by a guy named George Whitfield, who was this great kind of reform preacher. So, you know, he had to fix what the Methodists did. He made it into a song, into what we know today. He added the phrase newborn babe that we sang earlier. Newborn king, sorry. So he added that. And then Mendelssohn, who was a great composer, wrote uh, the tune for George Whitfield's adaption of the poem. And that tune was written to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Gutenberg Press, which was this tool that helped spread the Bible all over the world and God used to fan the flames of the Reformation. And so the song comes down to us and it's, it's a song that has to do with like, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's the idea of how the angels were trying to get these regular shepherds to pay attention. Now, I don't think that you probably used the word hark this week. Hark is this word, it's like, pay attention. It's like, if you got a really good grade on your test students, and you want your mom to know how good a grade you got, you say hark. Look at my grades. They're immaculate. Right? If you wanted to raise at work, you'd say, boss, hark to my great labor. And how thou hast not adjusted for inflation. <laughs> it's, it's basically demanding attention to heart. This is what the Bible is saying to the whole world about Jesus. Hark until you pay attention. Hark and put your focus right here. Like... Put blinders on to everything that would dilute and distract and detract away from what Jesus has done for you on the cross for your sins and what He's done to conquer the grave. Hark into the King who became a baby. See, lots of children were born and then became King. He was the King who became a baby. So pay attention. Can I pray for you? My, we're going to sing. Maybe you have never called upon the name of the Lord and trusted Jesus with your sins. And so you are carrying your own weight. You're acting like you don't need any help. But I want to invite you to call upon Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the grave. That your sins may be forgiven and that you might have new life in His resurrection. You don't need any fancy preacher. You don't need any immaculate um, ritual. You just need a heart that like my son caught in the snow cries out for help. And so would you ask for that if you've never done that before?
If you're a Christian here, maybe just between you and God, and you would say, the end of my heart is completely overrun and I got no room for Jesus. I just want to invite you to kick some stuff out. Maybe if you're a Christian here that you would repent of some stuff that is cluttering up your soul and make room for Jesus. No one better fits in the throne of your heart than your Creator and your King Jesus. So declutter. Repent. For those two bold moves, I'm going to pray for you. And whatever business you have with God, have it. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For those that are here, that are lost, and have never trusted Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come and work in them so that they might know you in truth and beautifully come to know you more the rest of their lives. King Jesus, for these here that are your subjects that are already born again, but have found themselves too busy, too cluttered, with no room for you left, God, would you come and help them? Be merciful and gracious. You're so good to us um, that now we want to just sing and adore your name. And so, Holy Spirit, fill us that we might praise you properly. Pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and respond to the word in singing?